I've mentioned before one of my favorite musicals is Fiddler on the Roof, and it's a story of uh, a community of Jews in pre-revolutionary Russia. And throughout uh, the musical, from time to time, its main character, a man by the name of uh, Tevye, would talk to God out loud. And he, was he would usually complain about something to God. And at one point, things are just getting worse and worse for him. He's just a poor milk farmer. He doesn't have much money. The Russian government is coming down against this community of Jews, and he's tired of his suffering. And he says to God, I know, I know, we are your chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? The question comes, why do we suffer? Last week, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and we talked about how God calls us to endure. But we ask the question sometimes, why me? Why is this happening to me? But what we have to remember as we look at the next number of verses this week is that Jesus himself suffered. Jesus prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so why do we suffer? Why does God seem to allow His chosen people, Israel, to suffer? Why is the Messiah of all the world? Why did He suffer? And if we find the answer to that, we can probably find the answer to the question why we, ourselves, suffer from time to time. Here's the simple answer to the question of why we suffer. God uses our suffering to produce a greater good. God uses the sufferings that we go through and how we endure it to produce something that's greater in this world. You see, when a Christian patiently and with faithfulness to God, endures unjust suffering, that situation itself becomes a very powerful form of witness. You see, lost people, it's been my experience at least, that lost people don't necessarily notice when our lives seem to be running really well, when we seem to have it all together. They just sort of, uh, lost people look at that and, and they don't, necessarily ascribe that blessing to God. But when a lost person sees a Christian who's going through a very difficult time with health or finances or relationships or whatever it might be, even persecution, and a lost person sees a Christian suffering, and that Christian, when he endures it with patience, with faithfulness to God, that's when the world will, will witness that. That's when the lost person will say, there's something different about that person. There's something attractive about his life. The life of a lost person is characterized by turmoil. There's no peace. But when they look at our lives and they see us experiencing the peace of Christ in the midst of difficult times, then they will take notice. Jesus himself suffered, and it wasn't simply as an example to us, although it's certainly that. But today we're going to read some verses that talk about the suffering that Jesus went through and how, at the very least, that should be an encouragement to us, but even more so, it should compel us 
to proclaim the sufferings of Christ to other people. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, we'll read through verse 22, and then we'll come back and we'll make some sense of the particular phrases and words that are used here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And so let's look at this passage very carefully because it's a very rich passage and we could spend a lot more time looking at this and studying this than we have today. But the first thing we need to understand is that God rewarded Jesus for remaining faithful through suffering. Verse 18, one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible, says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, why do I say that this verse might be one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture? It is simply because of this. This verse contains the entire gospel in it, the good news that people need to know. The question has come up uh, recently in my mind as I was contemplating uh, some things what makes a church different than any other group that does good? I was listening to the radio, and uh, there was a, um, a really powerful commercial that came on the radio, and it essentially said that a phone call, a text message, an email, or even a personal visit can change someone's life. I thought, well, I wonder what church is presenting this commercial on the radio. And the next thing the announcer said was, contact a veteran today. And I thought, okay, that's, that's a good message. And certainly our veterans need our, um, our attention. Our veterans need not to feel neglected. But it raised the question in my mind, what makes... A, an outreach to veterans any different than what a church does? Specifically, what makes the church unique? I mean, is the church simply nothing more than a, uh, a Boy Scout group or a, a Lions Club or uh, some other community group, something that does good in the community? Is there something unique about the church that sets it apart? And the answer to the question is, what is unique about the church is the cross. What's unique about the church is not that we might do good deeds in the community. We should, but other groups do good deeds as well. 
What's unique about the church is the message of the cross. Because the message of the cross tells us that we are not all right. If our Savior had to die on the cross for a reason, and if we are that reason, it's because there's something wrong going on. Verse 18 in 1 Peter chapter 3 contains the entire gospel message in it. It is the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's look closely at what it says. It says, For Christ also died for sins. He died for sins. This means that He paid the penalty for our sins. There is a penalty for sin. Scripture tells us what the penalty for sin is. Romans 6, 23 for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The penalty for our sin is death. But First Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. That verse continues. Christ died for sins also died for sins once for all once for all that means the payment for sin is complete there's nothing else that you can do that can add favor to god's account for you you cannot gain god's favor by being good god's favor has already been gained through the cross he died for sins once for all. The payment for sins is now complete. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the things he said right before he died was, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. It was found on other documents, banking documents, meaning, meaning that a debt has been paid in full. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying payment has been made in full. Jesus died once for all. You know, there's some churches that teach that every time they partake of communion, Jesus dies another death. That every time they partake of Mass, the church, that church teaches that Jesus is actually crucified again, and they crucify Him week after week, after week, after week, every time they partake of Mass. But that's an unbiblical teaching. That's simply not true. Jesus does not die every time that Mass or the Lord's Supper or communion is taken. He paid the penalty once. The only reason Jesus would have to die again is if He didn't pay for all of our sins when He died the first time. But the Bible is clear. Jesus paid it all. All of our sins are forgiven. The next phrase in the verse is just as powerful. It says that Jesus died, He also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Who's the just? Jesus. He's the just one. He's the righteous one. And He died for the unjust, that's you and me. He died for the unrighteous, that's you and me. This means that Jesus is our substitute. Not only did He pay the penalty for our sins... And not only did he die once for all sins, but Scripture says that he is our substitute. He took our place. 
our kids will go to school and sometimes the teacher will be absent and there will be a teacher called the substitute. It's the teacher that takes the teacher's place. Jesus is the substitute for us. Instead of us having to pay the penalty for our sins, He died in our place. He died in our stead. Theologians say that His Christ is vicarious. What they mean by that is He died in the place of us. One of the titles that the Roman Catholic Church gives the Pope is that of vicar. He is the vicar of Christ. The word vicar means substitute. The idea in that false teaching is that Jesus is, uh, since he's now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, uh, there must be a substitute for him on earth. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but the substitute for Jesus on earth is not any man. It is not the Pope. It is not the priest. It is not the pastor. It is not any other man that is the substitute for Christ. The only vicar, the only earthly substitute for Christ on earth is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has come to carry out the ministry in a wider range through the church than Christ could do if he was contained in a human body and he continued to live here on the earth. Jesus was our substitute on the cross paying for our sins and the Holy Spirit is the one that carries out Jesus' ministry even today. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the just paying for the sins of the unjust. Verse 18 continues. It tells us the reason Jesus paid the penalty for our sins as our substitute. It is because so that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. Here's the implication, the obvious truth. Our sin has separated us from God. But when Jesus died, paying the penalty for our sins, paying the penalty for all of our sins, paying the penalty as the substitute for us on that cross, he did so so that he might bring us to God, so that he might be able to bridge that gap that has been created between God and us because of our sins. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he broke down the wall of separation that separated us from God. And he did this in a very dramatic way. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, Scripture says, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's Matthew talking about? The temple in that day had different areas in it. The Holy of Holies was a place that only the high priest could enter, and he could only enter it once every year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. And he would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of a lamb on his hands, and the, whole, and the, the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat seven times. And he would do this to signify that access to God comes only through blood that covers our sin. Now, what separated the Holy of Holies from what is called the holy place was a huge curtain. It was a thick, it was a gloriously wrought veil. It was made of purple and blue 
in scarlet material and linen. And this veil, when Jesus died on the cross, was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if a man had torn it, he would have torn it from the bottom to the top. But the tearing of the veil was torn, it was done by God. And it signified that access into his presence would now be available to everyone, not simply the Jewish high priest. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Scripture says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus being our mediator means that we don't have to go through anyone else to talk to God. We don't have to go through Mary. We don't have to go through the Pope. We don't have to go through the pastor. We don't have to go through your daddy, your mama. We don't have to go through grandma. All we have to do is go straight to God. So if you sin, you can confess it directly to God. If you have a need, you can tell God. If you're thankful, you can tell God. If you're hurting, you can tell God. Verse 18 continues. It says, Jesus, having been put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the Spirit. Now this is probably the key. This phrase is the key to understanding the entirety of the passage that we're talking about. And specifically, it's this idea of flesh and spirit. Now in the New Testament, every single time that you have a passage of Scripture where the word flesh and spirit are used in contrast to one another, every single time it means the flesh represents the physical world. It represents the world where our bodies are, the world that dies, the world that's affected by, by sin. It, it, it basically is everything that you can see and experience and touch and feel and taste and all of that. This is the fleshly world. The spirit is that which is unseen. It exists in the same sphere, if you will. It exists simultaneously, but we don't see the angels that are with us today. We don't see what is going on in the spiritual realm today, not with our physical eyes. But there is a spiritual realm that exists simultaneously with this physical realm in which you and I would commonly call existence. And so this idea of Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, simply means that when Jesus died, he died a physical death. He was put to death in the physical realm. But he was made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit who works in a spiritual realm. It doesn't teach that Jesus, when he rose from the grave, he was simply a spirit. It's not teaching that at all. Because we know Scripture says that he rose physically. But the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, and he did this in the spiritual realm. And so this physical realm that we live in, this fleshly realm, it's temporary. But the spiritual realm that we experience is eternal. And so Jesus was willing, here's what Peter's teaching, Jesus was willing to suffer a temporary physical death for the sake of an eternal spiritual gain. And what was the gain that Jesus gained by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. 
He gained this for us that he might bring us to God. Now, verse 19. <coughs> it reads, In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What in the world does Noah have to do with any of this? Now, this is a passage that has confused uh, theologians throughout the centuries, and there's been over 60 different interpretations of what uh, is actually being talked about here. But let's take it carefully, and you'll see that uh, the interpretation that I give you makes a lot of sense. It begins with, in which, verse 19 does, in which, and what does that refer to? The spiritual realm. Jesus died in the physical realm, and he was raised in the spiritual realm, in which, in the spiritual realm, he, who's he? Jesus. What did he do? He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. What spirits are those? Sometimes people see the word spirits and they think, well, maybe the, those are the angels. Maybe those are bad angels. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, he, he descended into a spiritual place and he uh, made a proclamation to these evil demons that I'm the Lord and, and I have power over you. And then he was raised from the dead. Uh, but I don't think that's what's going on here. That's not the interpretation at all. In fact, let's continue to read that. He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. When? Back in Noah's day. What's he talking about? Here's what Peter's saying. The spirits that are now in prison, those are people that have died, even by Peter's day, they had died and they are now in prison or in hell awaiting the final judgment. But Jesus made a proclamation to them. Does that mean that Jesus went to hell and he made a proclamation to them in hell? No, because Peter tells us when Jesus made the proclamation. When did Jesus make this proclamation of these people who are now spiritually in hell? Jesus did it back in Noah's day. He says that. He made proclamation when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Jesus made proclamation to people who were living in Noah's day during the construction of the ark. What was the proclamation? That they should repent. That judgment was coming. Did they heed that proclamation? Nope, only eight people did. But the others who did not heed, who did not believe the word of God during Noah's day, did not hear Christ as he was preaching through Noah because Noah was his mouthpiece. Jesus was spirit in the spiritual realm preaching through Noah during the building of the ark, and they did not heed that. Those people have since died, and they are now in prison. Let's read that again with that understanding. Verse 19, In which 
also Jesus went in the spiritual realm and he made proclamation to the people who are now in prison who formerly were disobedient during the days of Noah when God was patient and he kept waiting during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I want you to think about the parallels between Noah and us. And this is why I think Peter is bringing up this idea about Noah. Noah, if you think about his family, Noah and his family were surrounded by hostile unbelievers. And so are we. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. And Peter exhorts us to be righteous in the midst of wicked unbelievers as well. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him. And Peter encourages us to be good witnesses to unbelievers around us. Peter encourages us to be willing to suffer if need be to bring others to God just as Christ was willing to suffer and die so that he might bring us to God. Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world. And Peter reminds us that God's judgment is certainly coming perhaps soon. In the unseen spiritual world, Christ preached through Noah to unbelievers around him. And by saying this, Peter can remind us that Christ also speaks spiritually through us in the unseen spiritual realm. And he empowers our witness and he makes us spiritually effective. During the time of Noah, God was patiently awaiting repentance from believers before he brought judgment. And that's the way it is today. God patiently awaits repentance from unbelievers. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And when judgment finally did come in Noah's day, it came quickly, without any further warning. And that's the way it will be with us. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But... Uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. In the end, Noah was finally saved with a few others. And Peter encourages us that though we, we may be few, we too will finally be saved. Why? For Christ has triumphed and he has all things subject to him. And so because Christ ministered spiritually through Noah, we can rest in the assurance that Christ ministers spiritually through us. We can also be assured that God will reward us for remaining faithful through suffering. Look at verse 21 in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's another confusing verse that we need to unravel. It says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
He says, corresponding to that, corresponding to what? Corresponding to the eight persons that escaped through the water. Just like those eight persons back in Noah's day, they escaped through the water. God does something with us as well. You see, the waters of baptism are in some ways like the waters of the flood. Because when we're baptized down into the waters, that's a symbol of being baptized into a grave of death. Scripture says in Romans 6, 4, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death. And the waters of baptism are like the waters of judgment. And so baptismal waters show us what we deserve for our sins. When the preacher or whoever it is who baptizes us brings us down into the waters, we're in a watery grave at that moment in time. And yet we're brought back up. And so the, the waters of baptism show us what we deserve for our sin we deserve death for our sin but when we come up out of the waters it's just like noah's family being brought safely through the waters of the flood and we are able to emerge to walk in newness of life and so baptism shows us how we have in one sense died and rise been raised again but in another sense we emerge from the waters knowing that we're still alive and we pass through the waters of God's judgment unharmed. And so what is Peter talking about when he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you? What does he mean, baptism now saves you? Well, he tells us what he means. Look at it again. He says, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've gotten in the habit in American Christianity, uh, it's not a really good habit, but it's a habit nonetheless of presenting the gospel to someone and they respond and they dedicate their lives to Christ, they can commit themselves to Christ, they receive Christ, and then later, somewhere down the road, we get along to baptizing them. It wasn't that way with the first Christians. When you got saved, you got baptized immediately. They looked around for water. They didn't have to wait for Sunday, wait for the baptismal to be filled up. Hopefully the hot water heater's working if it's a cold day. They didn't do any of that. They went down to the cold river. They went down into a, a, a lake or a stream or whatever they could find immediately to be baptized. That was the custom. That's really what God has ordained. Uh, but we've become a little bit churchy, and we've somehow insisted that Baptism can only be done by a quote-unquote man of God, only be done on a Sunday, only be done when the church is meeting. None of that was true early on. You got saved, someone baptized you immediately. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter could say, Repent and be baptized. Was he saying that getting wet help send you to heaven no it's not the removal of dirt same guys writing this it's not the removal of dirt from your body that saves you it's the appeal to god for a good conscience 
It is the, what's going on on the inside. It is the fact that you're saying, God, I need you to change my heart. And so, yes, I'm willing to repent and as a sign of that, be baptized. Now, immediately. So when Peter says, baptism now saves you, he's pointing to the experience of these believers that they had when they received Christ and were baptized. Because that's what we really remember. If we were to be baptized immediately upon being saved, that would be what we really hang on to mentally. It's pretty hard to forget. Yielding yourself to someone else's care as they lower you into the water. That can be a traumatic event. We talk about, see videos of people doing trust falls where people fall down and someone catches them. This is, this is much more difficult than a trust fall. You're trusting someone to drown you, but not for a long time, bring you right back up. And so that kind of thing can stick in your mind. Peter's pointing to that experience. And so, so when he says baptism now saves you, he makes it clear it's not the getting wet, the removal of dirt from the body that saves you. It is the inner spiritual appeal that you have to God for a clean conscience. God changed my heart. That is your prayer. And so Peter tells us that everything the baptism represents, death to our old way of life, resurrection to a new way of life, it comes to us, verse 21 concludes, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection of Christ marked his once and for all exit from the realm of death. Think about what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. It wasn't simply that his body was raised from the dead, as, in, as incredible as that was, but that resurrection of Jesus from the dead marked something for Jesus. It marked that he was exiting this physical realm of death that we inherited from Adam and Eve and their sin. Jesus would never again be affected by death. When you get resurrected from the dead, following in the example of Jesus, that will mark your exit from the same sin and sickness and death and mess that this whole world the way it affects us the same kind of mess that had an effect on Jesus had such an effect on Jesus that he willingly died on a cross to pay for our sins that's what baptism represents baptism is a sign that someday just as you were raised from the waters you will be raised from the dead and you will exit this world of death. Verse 22, Peter concludes this section by saying about Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Where's Jesus today? He's at the right hand of God. He has 
ascended to the position of Lord. When we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, being buried in the grave, being resurrected from the grave, and then ascending to heaven, we're talking about something much more than simply Jesus leaving this physical earth and going up into the clouds. Okay? That is a, that is a type of lifting off of the earth, a type of ascension, but the ascension of Christ is more than just a relocation of Jesus' body. The ascension of Christ means that he has, through his obedience and through the resurrection, earned the title of Lord to the place where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. The person who sits at the right hand of the king has all of the king's authority. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he rules over angels, he rules over authorities, he rules over powers. Everything has been subjected to Jesus. We look out upon the world and we see a lot of people that don't seem to be subject to Jesus. They're doing their own thing. They may even curse his name. But that's a temporary situation. Eventually, Scripture says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.